Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. A few weeks ago, I received an email from an attorney friend about a referral. He didn't give me details, but he was looking for an attorney who handled veterinary malpractice cases. Now, you know we're not lawyers, but we do have many contacts in the animal and pet universe, and I was able to provide a few leads. But I do know that legal action against veterinarians is rare and successful cases for malpractice even rarer. You do hear a lot of social media chatter about someone claiming their vet harmed or killed their dog or cat, but usually things are not clear-cut, and even so, the law and history and culture does not favor owners at all. So where do we stand in the area of veterinary malpractice? What are the good and bad points in current law to protect animals, treat our veterinarians fairly, and give a voice to pet owners? I'm pleased to welcome to the show Bob Ferber, attorney and former Los Angeles animal cruelty prosecutor. Bob, let's start by having you give an overview of veterinary malpractice. What are the elements we'll need to discuss here? All right, I think the first thing to understand is that while everybody knows that there's such a thing as medical malpractice, where a doctor or a hospital makes a terrible mistake that uh, can cause somebody to suffer or even die, there's a procedure in this country where you can go to a malpractice lawyer and you can sue the doctor or the hospital and you can recover not just the cost of what you paid for that surgery that went bad, but you could recover huge amounts of money for this pain, the suffering, even the impact that it might have on some of your other family members, loss of income, uh, loss of companionship. These can uh, range anywhere from tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars. The difference with animals is that it goes back to a a topic that we've discussed, Lori, many times on the radio show, and your listeners are well aware of, uh, in the United States and most parts of the world, animals are not treated as living, sentient, feeling creatures, but as property. Right. And the law looks at animals in almost every situation the way they would look at damage to, let's say, your car. If a mechanic put in the wrong oil filter and it leaked on your garage floor and there's oil there and maybe damage to the car, the most that you'd be able to get from the mechanic is the cost of repairing the car and maybe cleaning up your driveway. Uh, But that's it. Of course, we as animal lovers know that that doesn't work. Our animals are not a car or a chair, and that uh, compensating us for just the cost of the the vet visit that didn't go well is not satisfactory. And so over the years, I've gotten many, many calls from people calling me as a prosecutor, even that's not, even though, Lori, that's not what my job was, saying, you know, I took my cat to the vet for um, a standard, let's say, to be neutered, and he died in surgery. Or they gave him a medication, I'll say a medication called Rimadol, uh, which is a common medication given to animals, and my animal died three weeks later. And, uh, or my animal's having a whole variety of things. And people come to me and say, well, what do I do? How can I get compensated? And what they also say, by the way, is, how can I prevent this from happening again? Which is 
really important because I, th- I think it, it, it's, it's important to know that when people do have this tragedy, most of the people I've talked to don't just want money. They're not out there for that. They're out there to make sure that other animals are protected and that justice was done. Right. The problem, Laurie, is that our system still looks at it as a car where the wrong oil filter was put in. And so when something terrible happens to your animal because a veterinarian did something wrong, if it's shown that it was malpractice, and I'll mention in a second what that is, the most that you can recover pretty much is the cost of whatever that vet bill was, Mm -hmm. and not much more. If you have a show dog, that is worth something more than, you know, that has a a market value where it can be sold for like $1,000, you can get maybe that. But of course, most of our pets that we have are not show animals. Their market value, which is the standard for uh, recovery, is simply, you know, how much did we pay to adopt them? You know, that's about it. So now, That leads us to the question of what is malpractice? Malpractice, whether it's humans or veterinarians, is defined as when the vet or the doctor does something that was negligent, that when the doctor or the vet should have known that this medication was the wrong medication and that it was negligent. But it's important to stress that they should have known based on the medication, the condition of the animal, what the the client, the pet owner, told the vet, and that would determine it. And it also is defined the standard for what that vet should have done. That pretty much goes by what do all the other vets in Los Angeles or the Inland Empire do, or what do all the vets in California do in this situation? And an example for is like Rimadyl, which is given for certain conditions. Rimadyl was one of the, uh, an infamous drug that when it first came out, there were many animals that died from the drug. And there was a lot, and yet uh, the the information that was given to the vets didn't show all the side effects and the possible risks. So when when these animals died in that case, it was the med- the manufacturer that had committed negligence, not the vets. And so many people sued their vet. And the vet said, look, I gave the medicine. There was nothing in the flyer that told me as a veterinarian that I couldn't give this medicine to your dog fluffy and so what would happen is there was no legal case interestingly a little footnote to that Lori, is that remedial at the beginning kind of apologized in a legal way and did reimburse many dog owners for the cost of their vet bill but a friend of mine lost one of their golden retrievers to Rivadol three weeks after they were given it all they got was the reimbursement for the Five hundred, six hundred dollars for the, you know, the vet bill. So that's where that's the general definition of malpractice: is did the vet do something that they should have known they shouldn't have done? But that leads to a whole situation, a very complicated situation that in the end doesn't really help out the vet owner. When when somebody, I'm sorry, the pet owner, when somebody calls me, Lori, and says, this is what happened. I brought my dog to the vet, and, I, and two days later, 
they called me and said he died in surgery. Or the, a very common situation is I brought my dog in for a simple, you know, uh, just having the ears cleaned and a dental. And I brought the dog home, and two days later, he dropped dead. And I don't know, what can I do? The first question I ask them is, how do you know that what the vet did caused it? And that's probably the most important question that people have to ask themselves. How do you know? I understand the human, it's human nature that to make a connection that, well, my dog was fine for He's seven-year-old golden retriever and was fine. And then I take him home two days after dental surgery, and he died. And it had to have been the vet. Well, not necessarily. The law, whether it's right or wrong to think that way, the law says no. We have to know proof. How do you know? That creates a real problem. Now, and let me back up for a second. While it may not be as likely, it's possible that the golden retriever had a pre-existing condition that we didn't know about. He might have had heart problems. And having nothing to do with the dental surgery, uh, it was a coincidence. That's possible. Or it might be that it could be a number of other things that happened that had nothing to do with what the vet did. But one of the first questions I ask people is, well, how do you know? And, Lori, in most cases, you know, the answer is usually, well, I don't really know. Uh, you know, I think it's that because my dog was healthy before. And I say, well, I know, but that's not really proof. Now, if you go to the vet and say, what, the vet, what did you do, it's not rocket science to realize that the vet is probably going to tell you I did everything that is the normal thing to do. Well, that kind of kills your case. Now, in medical malpractice, Lori, what would happen is a lawyer would get the medical records from the doctor, which are very detailed by law, and go over those records. And with a fine-tooth comb, if, let's say, your husband passed away or your sister, and then now it's human malpractice, you would get a volume of records. They would be reviewed by expert other doctors who would go through it with a fine-tooth comb and say, well, when your sister died, your sister had all these pre-existing conditions that the hospital knew about, but they gave your sister the wrong medication in spite of it, and that's malpractice. But with veterinarians, one of the problems we have in the country is that veterinary records are very inconsistent. The laws are not the same as with humans. Vets are notorious for not keeping good records. One of my favorite vets, he's terrible about keeping records. He he just, you know, he's sloppy. He he puts them together three, four days after he saw the dog. He's one of the most popular vets in Los Angeles. But when I go to him and say, well, I need the copy of the vet record that you, what you did a week ago. Well, I haven't written it up yet. Uh, We laugh about that, but it's not really funny because You know, that means it's not going to be accurate, as it should be. And also, if you have an unscrupulous vet, what about them changing the records? What about them writing them differently? There's not much recourse for getting those records before they might have been changed or written up to cover the vet's butt. Okay, don't go away. we got to take a break. But when we return, Bob is going to explain what we might be able to do when we do know that the veterinarian might have been careless. Don't go away, you're listening to Animals Today. 
Made with all natural ingredients and essential nutrients, Cadet Creamy Cat Treats are the perfect protein-packed snack that is available in four delicious flavors. Chicken and liver, chicken and shrimp, salmon, and tuna. Cadet Creamy is hydrating and rich in amino acids and essential nutrients to ensure proper kidney function and digestion. It can be enjoyed on its own or as a dry food topper. To turn creamy into an icy treat, use the Cadet Creamy feeding mat and heart-shaped silicone ice tray to freeze the treat and serve chilled. That's Cadet Creamy Cat Treats. Welcome back. We're speaking with attorney Bob Ferber about veterinary malpractice. Let's give a scenario. Let's say someone takes their dog in to their veterinarian for a dental procedure, and it's standard veterinary practice for that procedure that the dog's given antibiotics and gives the owner antibiotics to give to the dog after the surgery. Let's say the vet failed to do that, was careless, forgot, And then two days later, the dog develops a terrible infection, spreads to the brain, maybe meningitis, whatever, and then the dog dies. So now we know the vet failed to give antibiotics and did do something wrong. Take it from there. That's a great example, Lori, uh, because in that situation, we know that the vet did wrong. Uh, So what do you do then? You can call a lawyer and... uh, First of all, actually, the first thing would be to talk to the the doctor and say, why did, why did this happen? And actually, I, I strongly recommend that, that before you jump to going to a lawyer, to have a conversation with somebody else there to first discuss with the veterinarian what happened, why did it happen. That can have a big influence on what your decision is later on. I, I don't agree with people who suggest that you suddenly take a confrontive approach and once you find the vet did something wrong, you immediately run to a lawyer and say, I'm going to go after this vet, because I don't think that that's appropriate. And uh, many times uh, when people learn that a vet did make a mistake, but it was an innocent mistake, even if it did result in a tragic ending, that can change the way you look at it. And that's about human relationships. And I think that, you know, the, you know, having a good relationship with your vet and the veterinarian community is important. And as sad as it is, people sometimes do make mistakes that anybody could have done. So let's say you've talked to your vet and the vet says, yeah, we screwed up. And let's assume the vet is not particularly friendly about it and says, yeah, well, we made a mistake and uh, I'm sorry. You go to your lawyer, malpractice lawyer, who then tries to get the veterinary records. Well, you have a the challenge in my job here, Lori, is to try to set up people and let them know the challenges they face, that it's not that easy. First of all, try to find a lawyer that will do the case. This is a big part of it, is yeah. that in a malpractice case, uh, humans, they take the case on a contingency basis, meaning you don't have to put up any money up front, because there's a reasonable guarantee from the, in the lawyer's view that he's going to get or she's going to get something. In veterinary malpractice, because there's so few cases of, of people recovering damages because of malpractice, most lawyers are not going to do it on a contingency basis. So your first challenge is to deal with the cost of, are you willing to pay twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 or more to a lawyer simply to 
take this case, you know, and do something about it with the understanding that in this country, uh, in 99 uh, tenths of the cases, judges still refuse to let somebody get more money, more than just the cost of the vet bill. Mm-hmm. So in your situation, you have to understand that yeah. you're the likelihood of getting anything more than the cost of that surgery, and is it that's it. But let's say you decided that you have the $25,000 and you want justice. You don't want this to happen again. So you say to the lawyer, go forward. The lawyer will then go through the normal route of a lawsuit and request records from the vet. I have a lot of respect for veterinarians. Many of my closest friends are veterinarians. But I have to tell you, the possibility of veterinary records being falsified or changed is very real. Or, as I told you earlier, uh, with the situation of my favorite vet, because he does his vet records very late, which is not right, if you talk to your vet and the vet says, yeah, we we messed up, and then you're... uh, you know, your lawyer contacts the vet weeks, weeks later to get the records. Uh, that vet may not have already written up that report, so those vet records may change. It may, they may say something that will hurt the case, that will protect them. But let's say you still get the vet records, and the vet records clearly show that the veterinarian made a major mistake that in every other case, in, in, in that situation with that dog, in that surgery, everybody would have given antibiotics throughout the country. Now you, you go to court. You, uh, you try to get, you, you, you have to come up with, well, how much money do you want? Well, this is the biggest problem or challenge in malpractice. And I, it was what I was saying before, Lori. The lawyer is going to tell you that in most cases, the surgery, which may have cost, let's say, $700 or 1000 bucks, that's all you're going to get yeah. for paying the lawyer $25,000. But, you know, what is, what, is, what is the pet owner really want? Well, they want more. I mean, they want the suffering, the pain. The, in some cases, there's an element of punishment that you should never have done this. Right. And also making the vet aware and the veterinary community aware that you can't get away with it. Right. You need to be more careful. But the reality is that when you go to court, Without going into, you know, the complicated legal analysis, and I can tell you all the cases around the country, the fact is that still in this country, the odds are you're not going to get any money for the pain and suffering that you went through or the pain and suffering that your animal went through and the pain and suffering that your family went through. And also things which is costing... There's terms like loss of companionship and things like that. So that, unfortunately, Laurie, is the reality of it, is that assuming you have the best case in the world, the biggest problem in this country is that we still in this country, not you and I, but the legal system looks at, you know, our golden retriever dog in that situation as no different than a car how about the wrong oil filter how about filing a complaint with your state's veterinary board does that get you anywhere Lori? that's an excellent question because in my own personal view that is one of the best alternatives in this country for holding vets more accountable uh, there's been articles written about that even though we still can't sue for a lot of money at least the vet should be held accountable by his his industry. The sad fact is that 
the veterinary boards around the country, or the state vet licensing board, rather, there's virtually no examples of real discipline. Right. Uh, I right. can tell you personally of many, many people that have called me that when I explained to them what I just explained to you and your listeners about how the likelihood of getting money is almost non-existent, and I tell them, but you know what? Complain to the licensing board, and then they get back to me that they never heard back, they never did anything, nothing ever happened. And then when I did research on this several years ago, I found that there was something like less than five vets in a period of several years that ever even got uh, a warning or a censure from the licensing oh, board, much less losing their license. Oh the God. situations, Lori, when vets have lost their license was after multiple, multiple situations where countless animals suffered or died, mm. and then finally they took their license away. There's many efforts around the country to solve these problems. Some people are working on trying to get more money when you lose an animal to recognize that pain and suffering is real and that pet owners deserve to be compensated for the loss of their pet just like a mother or father who lost their child. Okay, we got to take a quick break, and after we return, we're going to discuss veterinary malpractice insurance issues with our guest, Bob Ferber. This is Animals Today. For more than 60 years, International Society for Animal Rights has been consistently fighting the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and advancing animal rights and animal law. ISAR is committed to advancing the rights of animals through a variety of law-based programs, including law, legislation, and legal education, both domestically and internationally. To learn more about ISAR's programs, please visit their website at isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. Okay, Bob, great discussion so far. So uh, most veterinarians, they don't really carry a significant amount of malpractice insurance. Um, how does that play into these uh, issues? Uh, it's a very big factor, and it's the major argument that the veterinary community makes for, for saying why people, their clients, should not recover uh, more than the value of the vet bill, you know, that they shouldn't be getting pain and suffering. Uh, according to some, uh, some information, veterinarians pay approximately $234 a year for a million-dollar policy uh, on average. That is a fraction of what doctors pay. Yes. Uh, what the, what the veterinary community has made the argument that if we start allowing people to sue vets for pain and suffering and loss of companionship, the insurance bills will skyrocket the way they actually are with human doctors who pay pretty very high premiums, thousands and thousands of dollars, and that that cost would be passed on to the consumers. As many of your listeners probably feel, veterinary bills are already very high, and many of my friends say, oh, they are, everybody's overcharging and it's too expensive. Uh, the veterinarian community says, well, if you think it's bad now, if you start suing us and we have to pay out for pain and suffering, we're going to be passing that cost on to you. The other argument, by the way, against allowing people to sue vets for 
more money is that vets believe that they will become very it'll interfere with the relationship of the vet and the client that they'll be more defensive that they'll be more they'll be afraid to be open they'll be afraid to try things that maybe might not work but might work and you know that an animal is suffering with a terrible disease or you know a, ter- a fatal disease they might not be willing to try something that would work because they're afraid of malpractice so that's a big obstacle. The argument, Peter, is raging. It's still going on. I've seen debates about it. And nobody really knows if that's really true or not. There's disagreements about it. But yeah. that's, the part, you know, it's, it's part of the problem. Yeah. Bob, we're going to wrap up this discussion going back to where we started. Uh, how can pet owners and pet guardians What do they have in their power to sort of prevent these situations from happening to where you really have to wonder whether lawsuit really has to happen or avoiding this idea of malpractice having occurred? I think that the client, that the pet owners have a lot of power in preventing malpractice. And what I mean by that is that you can't make your vet or teach your vet to how to be a better vet. But communication, building up a relationship with your vet where where you the, you are making sure that your vet knows everything that they need to know to make an informed decision. You know, and that involves a good relationship between the pet owner and the vet. If an if a animal is going into surgery, it's real important that you not just drop your dog off and say, I'll pick him up at the end of the day or tomorrow, but that you have a, dis- and not just a discussion with the, re- the receptionist. Well, you know, my dog is how old and you fill out a form that did your dog not eat in the last 24 hours, but a real discussion with the veterinarian who's doing it about, well, do you understand that my dog has had this issue? This is the kind of food that he's on. I give him these supplements that he has had a reaction to something several years ago. Uh, Making sure that if you have different vets, that the vet that's doing the surgery has all the vet records, and that making sure that he or she has read those records so that he's, he or she is fully informed. A very important part of this is when you get medications from your vet, making sure the vet goes over all the consequences of the vet. Don't be afraid to say to the vet, what are the possible consequences? What happens if this goes wrong? What animals should not have this medication? Maybe the most important thing is when you bring your animal home from surgery is what am I supposed to look for if something is going wrong yeah. and not waiting? Uh, I, I, and while you can't make your vet a better vet from what they learned in vet school, giving them the most information possible, being a patient advocate for your own animal and not being, able, not being afraid to stand up and demand answers, that will help. And if you have a veterinarian who brushes you aside and says, don't worry about it, I know what to do, then maybe you should consider getting a different vet. Right. If your veterinarian's not willing to have that discussion with you, then that's a red flag. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it would be, it's the same for a human doctor, too. Right. Right. Absolutely. Lori, when we were talking in talking about what to do if you you're, what to do when you realize that the vet did something wrong or you think your vet did something wrong, one of the first things that I suggest to people to do, even before they go to a lawyer or start anything confrontational, is to see if they know another veterinarian 
who is willing to review the records. It's something that I recommend to people all the time. If you have a trusted another vet that is a friend or another vet that you've used before, see if they're willing to look at the vet records. In many, many cases, the other vet that you trust implicitly will say and explain to you that, you know, the vet didn't do anything wrong, or this was something that anybody could have done. Or it may be that they'll say, like in your situation, Lori, that everybody gets this antibiotic after the surgery, and I can't believe that vet didn't do that, and I wish you luck in court. Yeah. So, Bob, someone's pet was harmed or even killed by a veterinarian. What do you say to them? Lori, over the years, I've talked to countless people who have lost their their animals and have called me wondering if there was a malpractice case. And as we've learned today, in almost every situation, they don't have a, a case or it's not worth going. But what I've learned is the most important feeling is they want to know that they did everything they could and have they have closure because they feel that they've done everything for their pet including in making inquiries, talking to experts, talking to a lawyer maybe, talking to other vets, and the comfort of knowing that in spite of the tragedy that you've done everything you could and that you gave them a very good life for the time they were with you, and keeping that in perspective, I found that most people, that gives them closure and they can move on. And in more cases than not, you find them at the shelter, you know, a couple of weeks later, I'm going to take it another one. Yeah. Bob Ferber, thank you so much. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about the American bison. These large, majestic animals, along with the bald eagle, serve as an official symbol of the United States. In prehistoric times, millions of bison roamed the continent along with large cats and woolly mammoths. However, by the late 1800s, as the U.S. inhabitants moved west, the bison population was nearly wiped out. This is because the settlers slaughtered bison for sport and their hides, as well as to clear the plains for livestock. Native Americans used bison for everything, from food and clothing to shelter and tools. According to the National Wildlife Federation, it's estimated that before the expansion west, between 30 million and 60 million bison roamed the area, from Canada to northern Mexico and from the plains to the eastern forests. However, by 1890, less than 1,000 bison remained. Thanks to a few private individuals, in conjunction with tribes, states, and the Department of the Interior, bison were saved from extinction. Bison are North America's largest native land animals. A full-grown male, a bull, can weigh up to 2,000 pounds and reach a height of six feet tall. A fully grown female, a cow, can weigh as much as 1,000 pounds and stand four to five feet tall. Bison calves weigh anywhere between 30 and 70 pounds at birth. The average lifespan of the bison is approximately 20 years. Sometimes confused with each other, bison are completely different from buffalo although there may be some resemblance. Buffalo originate in Africa and Asia, have large sets of horns, and lack the massive shoulder hump characteristic of bison. 
The bison is a fascinating animal that has a long history in the United States. In fact, this large mammal helped to create habitats on the Great Plains for a variety of species, including birds and many plant species. This is because as bison forage, they aerate the soil with their hooves. This aids in plant growth and disperses native seeds, all of which help to maintain a healthy and balanced ecosystem. Now, that large hump on a bison's back, it's a powerful muscular structure supported by a large vertebrae, which can be up to two feet long. These powerful muscles permit the animal to forcibly move its head side to side. So in deep snow, a path can be made. It's like a built-in snowplow. Here's another intriguing bison fact. It's possible to tell the mood of a bison by its tail. If its tail is hanging down and moving from side to side in a natural motion, this generally means the animal is calm. However, if the bison's tail is standing straight up, you don't want to be anywhere in its path, as this often indicates it's ready to charge. And despite their massive size, these animals can run at speeds of 40 miles per hour. They're also extremely agile and can jump up to six feet high, as well as spin around quickly. This has served them well in fighting off predators. Of course, their sheer size alone presents a strong deterrent. In the bison behavior known as wallowing, they roll around in the dirt to drive away flies and help shed fur. Male bison also wallow during mating season to leave behind their scent and display their strength. Speaking of mating, the females and males generally live in small, separate bands and come together in large herds in the summer, which is the mating season. Bison are grazers, and they eat grasses, herbs, shrubs, and twigs. They regurgitate their food and chew on it as cud before finally digesting it. Another interesting fact is that bison are nearsighted. To make up for it, they have excellent senses of smell and hearing. Yellowstone National Park is the only place in the United States where bison have continuously lived since prehistoric times. According to the National Park Service, as of July 2015, Yellowstone's bison population was estimated at 4,900, making it the largest bison population on public lands. The Yellowstone herd is one of the few that remains genetically free of cattle genes. In 1905, the American Bison Society was formed. By 1930, the society had enough bison to restore a free-ranging bison herd. Working with the Department of the Interior, they donated 14 bison to Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota. More than 100 years later, the bison from Wind Cave helped to reestablish other herds across the United States. On May 9, 2016, President Obama signed the National Bison Legacy Act into law, officially making the American bison the national mammal of the United States. And that was today's Animals Today Minute. You're listening to Animals Today with Dr. Lori Kirshner, your home for serious talk about animals. Welcome back to Animals Today. Hey, Peter. Hey, Lori. Do you worry about going in the ocean? Oh, uh, I worry about jellyfish. Worry about jellyfish? Do you worry jellyfish. about sharks? No, I don't worry about sharks. Maybe I should. I want to know how much you know about sharks. Okay. Not Let's much. see. I'm going to just tell you not much. I have a quiz for you. Yes. All about sharks. Okay. Ready? Peter, true or false, you have a greater chance of being struck dead by lightning than being killed by a shark attack. Mm, I'm going to say that is true. That is true. About 30 people die during shark attacks each year. But it is true. For every one human killed by a shark, 
How many sharks are killed by humans? 200,000, a half a million, or two million? Two million. That's correct. Yeah. For every human killed by a shark, two million sharks are killed by humans. Isn't that sad? Yes. Scientists used to, I, I don't know if they still do, but they used to study shark cartilage to research possible cures for what? For arthritis? Cancer. Oh, yeah. Scientists study shark cartilage to research possible cures for cancer because sharks rarely ever develop cancer. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. Right. What is the world's largest shark? The great white shark, tiger shark, whale shark? Pretty sure that's the whale shark. Very good. It can grow up to 50 feet long and weigh more than 40,000 pounds. True or false? Sharks have an acute sense of hearing. Oh, hearing. That's true. True is correct. Some sharks can hear prey from up to 3,000 feet away. Sharks lose a lot of teeth and grow them back quickly. So how many teeth do you think sharks go through in a lifetime? Okay, I'm going to guess about 500 teeth per life. 30,000. Oh, my goodness. The average shark has 40 to 45 teeth and can have up to seven rows of replacement teeth. So if you're one of those people who likes to wear a shark's tooth around your neck like it's something special, it really isn't. They're all over the place. How many bones do sharks have in their body? Oh, I think I know they don't have any bone. Did you know they're classified as vertebrates? Well, yeah. Okay. Isn't that interesting, though? Okay. Vertebrate means you have a bony skeleton, right? Oh, that's... Good paradox there. I wonder how that slid through. The term cartilaginous fish means that the structure of the animal's body is formed of cartilage instead of bone. They don't have a bony skeleton like many other fish do. Peter, did sharks inhabit the earth before, during, or after the dinosaurs appeared? Before. How did you know what I was going to ask? I I know. How did I know? I I just said before the... I know. Before the planet of the apes. (laughs) 400 million years ago. Sharks inhabited the earth 200 million million years before the dinosaurs appeared and have changed only minimally during that time. I know. That's really amazing. It's incredible. What percent of shark attack victims are men? Oh, uh, how do they taste? Let's see. If I was a shark, uh, I'm going to say that 85% are men. How do they taste? Is that Men taste so much better than women. Yes, 90%. Despite the fact that almost equal amount of men and women swim in the ocean, men account for nearly 90% of shark attack victims. Mm -hmm. Do you think most shark attacks occur in relatively shallow waters or deep waters? I'll say the shallow waters. Yep, about two-thirds of shark attacks on humans have occurred in less than six feet of water. Do sharks lay eggs or give birth to live young? Okay, live birth. It's actually both. Oh, some shark Some sharks lay eggs, others give birth to live young. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. True or false? The film Jaws, though heavily fictionalized, was based on a real incident in 1916 where four people were killed by a shark off the coast of New Jersey. Okay, that story. I'm going to say that's a true story. It is true. Did you know that, though? No, no. Yeah, I didn't either better get a bigger boat remember that line yes oh my god is that how is that was that the exact line i, I don't remember. know i can't remember but there's some where you're gonna need a bigger yeah boat. yeah <laughs> no, was, after they first spotted jaws yeah there's a few pretty intense moments in that movie i know and not the fake thing coming out of the water that's supposed to be a shark though that was pretty old-fashioned <laughs> the cookie cutter shark is named after what Cutter shark. I don't know. Oh, oh, is this the shape that it leaves in your yes. in your body after it takes a bite out of you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's 
That's good. That's Did horrible. you know that, or was no, that just like just an a, educated guess? Oh, that's a horrible thing. <laughs> oh. You get bitten by a shark. Oh, this must be oh, a cookie. Oh, look, Mom, I got a cookie cutter. <laughs> cookie cutter sh- Don't piranhas leave a certain shape when I they can, take a little bite out of your like an flesh ice cream also. scoop or yeah, a little oh. <laughs> i think okay they do. I, you asked i'm not going in the ocean this, this <laughs> okay. i don't care i don't i'm not going in deep water or shallow water or anything i'm just gonna stay by the cocktail lounge <laughs> you're gonna stay in the waiting pool with I, cocktail in each hand <laughs> I, I think waiting pools are pretty dangerous too if you know what i mean <laughs> True or false, some sharks can live in both salt and fresh water. Oh, I'm going to say that's true. That's true. Bull sharks can live in both salt and fresh water by regulating the substances in their blood. Yeah, that ability is just the most amazing thing to think about. That's it, Peter. You did pretty good. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and this Animals Today Minute is about dog bites and how to avoid and prevent them. According to the CDC, approximately 4.5 million dog bites on people occur yearly. That means about 1 in 72 people get bitten each year by dogs. Now, we all love our dogs, but it's smart to know some of the facts about bites. National Dog Bite Prevention Week takes place during the second full week of April each year and focuses on educating people about preventing dog bites. According to the AVMA, most, if not all, bites can be prevented. By far, children are the most common victims of dog bites, followed by the elderly and, yes, postal carriers. We all know that the medical consequences of bites can be serious, like causing infections, causing severe pain, requiring surgery, causing disfigurement, and so on. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons reported that nearly 29,000 reconstructive procedures were performed in 2016 for injuries caused by dog bites. And dog bites often result in homeowners insurance claims. According to the data of the Insurance Information Institute, there were more than 18,000 dog bite insurance claims in 2017, with the average cost paid out per claim being about $37,000. When dogs bite, it is usually in response to something like the dog being stressed, scared, startled, or threatened. So the situations need to be managed by us people. And dog owners should properly socialize their pets. There's lots of information online about how to do that. And duh, we should keep our dogs on leashes when they're out. And choose the right dog for your family. And of course, make sure they're fixed, do appropriate obedience training, and keep them well exercised. Remember, a tired dog is a happy dog. A few especially risky situations have been identified, including when the dog is not with its owner, when the dog is with its owner, but the owner has not given permission to pet the dog, injured or sick dogs, dogs that are sleeping or eating, and growling and barking dogs. There are other common sense things to do to avoid bites, like avoiding placing one's hand through a fence where a dog is on the other side, and allowing dogs who want to be left alone their space. It bears repeating that far and away, most people who are bitten by dogs are children. So parents and dog guardians keep that in mind when they're near each other. Everyone agrees, even though dogs are man's best friend, there are too many people getting bitten by dogs. Do your part to make avoidable dog bites a rare occurrence. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that's your Animals Today Minute for today. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.